There are two critical aspects to your relationship with Jesus. Number one, who do you believe Jesus is? From that question, you will derive what you believe is true. Do you believe what Jesus said about himself is who he really is? Do you believe that Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago, plus, has a direct implication and a direct ramification for your life on earth today and into eternity? Who do you believe Jesus is? But it doesn't just stop with that first aspect, because the book of James recounts that even the demons believe Jesus is who he said he is. And scripture is quite clear that Satan knows Jesus is who he really is. So the recognition of who Jesus is does not save you. It does not change you. So this continues over to point number two. Point number two, where is your hope? From point number one of the belief that Jesus really is who he says he is, and that is critical, there are so many people on earth today who do not believe that Jesus is who he said he is. There are false prophets, there are false religions, there are the pagans, there are the atheists who do not believe in really anything. But point number two is where is your hope? Because the answer to that question will impact how you live your life, what you follow after in your life. Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is? That he is the Savior? That he came to earth sent by the Father to show the way back to the Father? That he died on a cross for your sin to bring you back into a relationship with the Father by being the sacrifice on your behalf that you could not accomplish yourself and be the perfect sacrifice which God the Father required for the restoration of relationship. And out of that hope that you are to live your life now following after Christ? Or do you live your life simply speaking the words? but not actually following after Christ. See, in the way that we live our lives, the day-to-day -day living of your life, it is that which proves what or who you truly hope in. It is that which testifies to wherein lies your hope. <laughs> Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. 
This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. Our wonderful God, the creator of all things and the wonderful leader, the magnificent leader who leads out in front of us. He has gone before us, for he was before us. And he is in this present with us. And he is leading us now, and he is guiding us now, and he has led us, and he is leading us, and he will lead us. If you are lacking in faith for today, know that the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow is the same God. The one who you had your hope in yesterday, you can have your hope in today, and you can have hope in for tomorrow. The Lord our God does not change. He does not shift. You look out in this world and you look in your life and you look at work and you look at your family and you look at your family history and you look at your neighbors and you look at your neighbor's kids and you see the struggles of this life. And you see temporary aspects. And you see things that change over and over again and you see derision and you see division and you see sin and you see struggle and you see strife and you see hatred and you see discord and you see all of this darkness in this world. And the Lord says, I do not change. He is a firm foundation in this world. The Lord, our God, our leader, the almighty, the magnificent. He does not change. Let us pray, and then we're going to be in our Bibles today in Genesis 18. Oh, wonderful creator, our Lord God of the universe, and all creation. There is nothing outside of your sight. There is nothing outside of your knowledge. You see good and you see evil. You see lawfulness and those who believe in the law and you see lawlessness and wickedness and evil. And Lord, you know the way of life and the way of light, the way of goodness in you. It is in following you. It is in following after you that we are complete and we know joy to an unmatched measure that could ever be known on this earth. 
It is in following you. It is only in you that there is goodness. It is only in you that there is joy. It is only in you that we are made complete. And outside of that, hope is not hope. Life is barely life. And all that waits is darkness and wickedness and lawlessness. So, Lord God, let your people choose this day whom they will follow. As they see the two options on the scale, may your people choose the way of life and the way of light and the way of goodness and the way of their God. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Savior. Amen. Folks, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis 18. To recap from last week, the book, uh, the chapter 17 in the book of Genesis is one conversation that the Lord had with Abraham. And it goes right into chapter 18. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, this is Abraham. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, capital L, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three says of fine flour kneaded to make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. 
But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Let's go back to verse 1. Abraham was still living in a tent. When Abraham had come to the region at Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and he had settled by the oaks of Mamre, he was living in a tent at that time, and he is still living in a tent. Normally, tent is for sojourning or for wandering or for journeying. But there's something simple about the fact that Abraham lived in a tent and he was still living in a tent. And sure, some people permanently lived in tents. And today, some people permanently live in tents or live in the wilderness. But you will remember that the Lord brought Abraham outside back in chapter 15. And he stepped out of his tent and the Lord brought him and said, look at the stars. So will the number of your offspring be. There is a simplicity and a wonder and a relatability that we can see in his tent living, even still, I think, today. And Abraham comes out of the door of his tent in the heat of the day, and he has this encounter, this very powerful and mysterious encounter with three men, as it is described. Is verse 1 a descriptive note of the author of Genesis, who many believe to be Moses? Because verse 1 starts right off and it says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So was it explicitly obvious to Abraham? Or was it a descriptive note? Some would suppose Abraham did not recognize the Lord and the angelic visitors, but I think that he did. And here's why. It's in the following verses. In verse 2, it says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, this type of language, this look and behold. You don't behold just a regular common everyday encounter. He lifted up his eyes. What do we remember? We remember that God went up from Abraham. In verse 22 of chapter 17, he lifted up his eyes. Now, of course, that can be just a simple expression that he was looking down and then he lifted up his eyes and he saw these men. Of course, that could be the case. But he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, you behold with your eyes something precious. You behold with your eyes something magnificent. You behold with your eyes something out of the ordinary. At least how it is recorded in the written word. And three men were standing in front of him. After he beheld them with his gaze. Verse number two also says that when he saw them, Abraham ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Sometimes in scripture and in antiquity, 
men would bow before other men in positions of authority to show respect. The running, the running to meet visitors, the running to meet anyone else was not culturally popular to do. It was not done very often. There was respect in walking. You would only run after someone if you were passionately after them. A passionate expression of your love and adoration or your love, familial love for them. I think of the prodigal son. The father ran to meet him when he saw them. But you don't read about this very often in scripture even. This running after. Almost a chasing after. And then he bows himself to the earth. This is a testimony to who he knows it to be. And also in verse 3. It continues, the testimony continues of who Abraham knows that this is. He says, oh, Lord, capital L in the ESV, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Oh, Lord. Again, culturally and in antiquity, you would call someone or refer to someone as Lord if they were in a position of authority over you or even wives to their husbands. And it wasn't an acclamation of deity to them. Lowercase l, Lord, was used as a sign of respect. A healthy sign of respect. But here we see capital L. This is a marked difference in scripture of who he is speaking with of who he is engaging with, of who he is describing, of who he is giving the title. Oh, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by who? How does he give himself the title? Your servant. Skip down to verse 5. And after that, you may pass on, Since you have come to who again? Your servant. Skip down to verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? If these were just three men, how would they know, one, that he was married, and two, what his wife's name was? I think for all these reasons that we can trust that Abraham knows this is God. And if he did not know it yet, he surely did in verse 10. When the Lord said what he had told Abraham shortly before, chapter 17, 21, let's read that first. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And now let's go back to verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. There is the continuity. There is the recognition of who he is speaking with. 
This is the Lord coming to Abraham again, purposefully, intentionally, and for multiple reasons, I believe. But let's recap on what just happened. And look at Abraham's eagerness in what was not culturally popular to do in his running to the three visitors. The text describes it here as three men standing in front of him. And one is the Lord. Notice Abraham's humility in bowing himself to the earth. Notice that he wants to spend time with God. He says, if I have found favor, do not pass by. And notice his hospitality and his generosity in the preparation for these visitors and for caring for them. Even basic needs. Do not pass by your servant. Let these provisions be brought. Do you know how much fine flour was used to make the cakes? Verse number six says, quick, three says of fine flour needed to make cakes, Abraham says to Sarah. Each seah is 7.3 liters of flour. And that was for each person. That is a lot of bread. And Abraham runs to the flock and he chooses a tender and good calf. This harkens all the way back to the early part of Genesis for me. And I'm thinking of Cain and Abel. And he picks a tender and a good calf. Or what I see as an acceptable offering for the king. Notice Abraham's attitude. Notice what's in his mind and what's in his heart. He has an eagerness. He has a humility. He has a humility in both his verbal expression and both in his physical manifestation of his body, his physicalness, his physicality before the Lord. His heart's desire is to spend time with God. If I have found favor, recognizing his position before the Lord, that the Lord is the one who is in charge, the Lord who is the one who is in authority. And he says, if this optimistic approach to God, if I have found favor with you, and please do not pass by who? Your servant. And his hospitality and his generosity for them. Verse number nine. These three visitors, they say to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? They open their conversation with Abraham with a question about Sarah. And I think the reason. It's because this part of the conversation between the three visitors and Abraham was for 
Sarah. For God had already told Abraham in chapter 17 about the prophecy for Abraham and Sarah, that they were, that she is to give birth in their union of their marriage to Isaac in about a year. We just looked at that. God already received Abraham's response before. And because our God is so wondrous and so personal, and because God had been telling Abraham for 24 years that they were to have offspring and that he was to be a father of a multitude of nations, I think God wanted Sarah to hear it from God's own voice. And I think God wanted to be right there to hear her response close by because our God is so personal. And even though I'm quite sure Abraham had told Sarah what God had said to him in chapter 17, verses 15 through 21 about the prophecy, how does Sarah respond now in verse 12? It's interesting. It's not somewhat like Abraham. It's exactly like Abraham. Let's go back to chapter 17, verse 17, and read this first. <laughs> Let's back up a few verses to 15. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Kings of peoples shall come from her. God says, I will give you a son by her and kings of peoples. That means, folks, that means at the very least, many, 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 many offspring because it's going to include kings, plural, of peoples, plural. Verse 17 here was Abraham's response from chapter 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Back to today's text. Chapter 18, verse 12. Sarah's response. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, verse 13, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? He translates for what she was saying in verse 12. And then the Lord brings a rebuke. Is anything too hard for the Lord? He reiterates a truth and says, At the appointed time, I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. 
for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. For she was afraid. There's a difference between fear and holy fear. Of course, holy fear recognizes God for who he is and knows that he is almighty and knows that he is a God of discipline and of justice. But human fear apart from holy fear does not operate in the same way that holy fear does. And holy fear apart from human fear does not act in the way that human fear does. Holy fear has a reverence and a worship to God. It has this heart of adoration and a heart of love for God. It recognizes God for who he is, and it worships God for who he is, and it changes the way that you look at the the aspects of your life and the facets of your life and the parameters of your life and even the laws of science. And it looks at the laws of science, holy fear does, in God, and it says, God is the God who created all things, and God is the God who created the rules of the parameters of this earth with regard to creation and with regard to adaptation and with regard to the laws of nature like the law of gravity. And holy fear says that even though our God created those things, God is still the one who is in charge of all those things. God is the ultimate authority of all those things. God is the ultimate authority of my life. Therefore, if God says something that is to come to pass either in my life or not specifically in my life, but in this world or even outside of this world, that is to come to pass because God is in control of all things, then God will do it. And I don't have to wonder if God will do it. I don't have to question God about it. I don't have to question myself about if God will do it because God is in charge of all things. God will do it. And that is holy fear. And holy fear also recognizes who I am before a holy God. And it compels me to bow myself to the earth in my mind, and in my heart, and to worship God for who he said that he is. Not the labels that mankind puts on the Lord, not the constraints that some humans put on the Lord, not the constraints that some Christians put on the Lord or instruct you that the Lord has constraints. He does not have constraints. He is holy and he will always be holy because that is who God is. But there is no limit to God. Because he dwells in eternity, because he has created all things, because he has dwelt from eternity past to eternity future and past and future are both words of 
periods of time, but God exists outside of time. There is no containment of our God. And holy fear recognizes that. And holy fear praises God in that. And holy fear loves God in that. And holy fear affirms God in that. And human fear does not operate like that. Human fear acts out of anxiety and out of concern for the individual. Human fear is focused on the human, on the individual. The human fear, the pagan fear, the fear of the world is focused on self. And you wonder, what can man do to me? But it's not in the scriptural, what can mortal man do to me? It's, the, it's in the very pagan and the very worldly view of, oh, I'm very concerned about what man might do to me. I'm very concerned because my concerns are about myself. I want the betterment of myself. I want myself to live the best life that I can live, or I want myself to be protected, or I want myself to be safe from these other people or what they say. I want myself to be isolated. I'm going to close myself off because I need to protect me. Human fear is concerned about all of these things and they build up in your life and the worries build up in your life and the anxieties build up in your life and human fear is contagious and human fear grows and it's like a cancer and human fear will start pulling you down and Satan enjoys the fact that fear can start to cripple an individual on this earth. And Satan is a deceiver. And he wants to stir people up against one another. And he wants to stir people into believing things which are not true. And he wants to stir people into believing things opposing God. And God comes to us and he shows us himself. And he appears to Abraham, 18 verse 1, by the oaks of Mamre. As Abraham sits at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And the Lord had just spoken to Abraham. We don't know how much time this was between chapter 17 and the very start of chapter 18. But folks, it could have been very tight in timeline. And we know that it is relatively very tight in timeline. And it could have been the same day. It could have been the next day. It could have been that close because of the testimony written here in the scripture. When the Lord said in chapter 17, verse 21, But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And then God reiterates it 
down in verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And the Lord still wants to come down and have this encounter with Abraham. Because he is doing something in the lives of Abraham and Sarah for their faith. And because God has a relationship with Abraham. And therefore, holy fear is completely different than human fear. Abraham knew it was the Lord speaking with them. Did Sarah know it was the Lord? If she did, then why did she doubt what God said? The Lord is always true. Always. Who was on the throne of her heart or what was on the throne of her heart? Adam and Eve doubted what God had commanded. When Satan came to them in the garden in chapter 3 of Genesis, he said, did God really say? And then he gave them some of what God said, and then he manifested something which was utterly and completely evil and untrue. And he connected all of that together when he recounted. He said he recounted. Did God really say this? And then here's some lies. And it caused Adam and Eve to doubt what God had said. Mary had a somewhat similar encounter to what God had been telling Abraham and Sarah when she had the visit by the angel saying that she would have a child and yet she was a virgin. And how did Mary respond? Mary said, she asked a question. She said, well, how can this be since I am a virgin that I am to conceive and give birth to a son? And then the next thing Mary said was, let it be to me, your servant. That's a very different response than how Sarah responded. What was in Sarah's heart? Sarah had rushed earlier to having an offspring, even though that God had promised an offspring and she rushed into sin by proposing sin to her husband, Abraham, with her maidservant, her servant, Hagar, the Egyptian. That went outside of the holy marriage union, and she rushed it, and she proposed it. She was the one who came up with the idea. She was the one who brought it to life. That was not an act, obviously, of faith in God, that what God had said, God will do. And here in the tent, she laughs and says to herself, 
after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord there, again, is lowercase l, as you will see in the scripture. This is a reference to Abraham. Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? The Lord had been telling them and telling them and telling them over 24 years, this will happen. It comes down to belief. It comes down to trust. Do I trust the Lord? Is he my greatest treasure? Do I run to him? Do I bow myself before him? Do I ask him to spend time with him? Do I know that I am his servant? at least in humility. And then what does a servant do? How does a servant live their life? A servant lives their life focused on the one whom they are serving. The focus is on the one whom they are serving. Your servant. It takes the posture at first, it takes the posture of humility before this person. But the servant is also committing to live a lifestyle that glorifies this person. Your servant in title first, and then in lifestyle of commitment. Your servant your servant. It is one thing to recognize Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and he came to earth to die on a cross for the forgiveness of sin and is resurrected back to the right hand of the throne of God. And the demons believe this, and Satan believes this, and they are still fully evil and enemies of God. Woe to the people on earth who believe just that and do not repent of their sin, turn away from the ways of this world and become servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will know what your hope is in. Because you will see how your mind thinks day after day, after week, after week, after month, after month, after year, and year, and decade. What do you spend your time thinking about? You will know what is the hope, who is the hope of your heart because of what your hope is in. What do you long for in your heart? What are you saving for with your money? 
What are you chasing after in your life? What do you chase? Everybody's chasing something. What do you chase after in your life every day? You're thinking about it. You're longing for it. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year in your life. There is something. There might be multiple somethings. What are you longing for? What ransoms your thoughts? What ransoms your heart? And the Lord Jesus is waiting for you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, magnificent and holy, you see our minds, you see our hearts, you see the longings of our hearts, and you see in this world the work of Satan and of evil that the evil one is building his kingdom on this earth. And you are the great leader above all, calling us to yourself, calling us to live lives where our hope and our greatest treasure is in you that we are most found when we are found in you, that we are most satisfied when we are satisfied in you, and that our greatest hope and our greatest joy and our greatest love is found in you. Oh Lord, help us to change and to glorify you with our entire lives. And may we do all this in the power and the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Join me next time as we continue in Genesis 18.